What London Can Be is brought to you by London Community Foundation, an organization dedicated to improving communities across London and Middlesex County. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome and thank you for joining us today for our first, our second Vital Signs Conversation of the Year on Racial Equality. Vital Conversations are critical discussions with our community's most pressing issues featured in the Vital Lena Community Foundation's Vital Signs Report. We speak with leaders, advocates, change makers, and people of lived experience as they share their knowledge expertise and stories about these issues. Today's discussion will be focused on systemic issues related to racial equality and what can be done to create a more just and equitable community for everyone. Now I'd like to introduce our moderator for today's session, Dr. Jerry White. Jerry White is currently Professor Emeritus of Sociology at Western. He's the Director of Aboriginal Policy Research Consortium internationally and Emeritus Editor-in-Chief of the International Indigenous Policies Journal. As a board member, and I have to comment, Jerry has been with us in um, as a board member and in community um, committee capacity in so many ways for so many years. And Jerry, we value that. As a board member at the London Community Foundation, he chairs the Social Impact Financing Committee, chairs Vital Science. Currently, he sits on the board of Mamoran Friendship Centre. He is passionate about improving well-being for all communities, having served on many public inquiries and provincial boards, including being the founding co-chair of the Ontario Health Professions Regulatory Ad Advisory Council. His research publications include 17 books on improving Indigenous well-being and six on improving healthcare delivery. Jerry? Thanks very much, Martha. Uh, on behalf of myself and my co-chair, Vanessa Delishny, I want to welcome everybody today to our second Vital Science Conversation of 2022. I was going to say 1922, but I'm not that old. 2022. Uh, today we welcome three very esteemed panelists who will be bringing us understanding uh, about how racism and discrimination impacts diverse communities and importantly what we might do to make this place uh, a place where all can feel at home and all can achieve their dreams. I want to thank you very, very much, panelists, for your time. So let me do something that I've been looking forward to, which is introducing our panelists for you today. Uh, Al Day is, uh, the is of the Turtle Clan, and his Oneida, or Anyataka name, is Lutahanwit. Currently sits as Shonosis, one of the uh, nine traditional chiefs of the Oneida Nation Council of Chiefs. He's been married to his partner, Laurel, for 55 years, and he's the proud father of Paul and Brian, and has resided at the Oneida Settlement since he was born. Al's currently executive director of Namoran Friendship Center, which I had the honor of sitting on the board till just recently, um, I retired, and has been in this position since August of 2011. During that time, um, I saw, and everybody else has seen, Namrin grow in terms of uh, staff, 
uh, programs and outreach and influence has grown as he built a number of memorandums of understanding and agreements with a wide range of actors in this city, um, City of London, London Middlesex Children's Aid Society, Thames Valley District School Board, and many more. We invited Al to join LCF's uh, Back to the River Committee in 2016. He joined our Grants Committee in 17, and he now chairs that Grants Committee and is a member of our board. Al has been involved member of Oneida Community and Sports and Community Service Organizations, including over 50 years of leadership positions. He represented Oneida and Namrand on many boards and agencies. I couldn't begin to name them all. He's been instrumental in the establishment of many regional and local organizations whose goals are to contribute to the well-being of Indigenous peoples. And lastly, and certainly not leastly, he has served as a policy analyst uh, for Indigenous organizations in the US and Canada, participated in negotiations with federal, provincial, and state governments in both countries. Welcome, my friend, Al. Next panelist is Ayo Owaduni. Uh, Ayo is a trained management consultant, a facilitator who brings 10 years of experience in coaching, training, and strategic direction to the table. He's a certified diversity and inclusion trainer and a life coach with an MBA in entrepreneurship. Ayo is known for those who work with him as a passionate, passionate trainer who loves to, and we love this, you mix wit and knowledge and a dose of humor. Um, to share great lessons that can lead to growth and transformation. Raised in Nigeria before coming to Canada, he has great insight into the barriers and possibilities for those who come to Canada. He is known for a series of interviews on the CBC, which he called How to Canada. I love the name of that series, <laughs> where he shares his immigrant experience and provides tips on how people who are new to the country can grow and establish themselves here. He's a member of the Institute for Performance and Learning and the Canadian Association of Management Consultants. Welcome IO today and thank you. The last panelist I want to introduce is Dollar Luo. Dollar is an impact-driven founder and associate product manager who leads teams with a focus on relentless execution. She has a background in computer science and business. She's scaled an award-winning social enterprise from early growth to acquisition. LCF, I want to say, is proud to have supported some of her entrepreneurship. And people are amazed by her many successes, such as Honest Empathy and the National Nonprofit Development Corporation that she's working with too, called Next Canada. With a, pro, with a focus on product design, sales, and strategy, she strives to challenge herself, learn from setbacks, and apply her new found knowledge, it's the only way to put it, to solve pressing problems for her community. She sits as a member of the London Community Foundation's Social Impact Financing Committee, and I am thankful every meeting to have her on my committee, and has participated in retreats where she shared her knowledge about racialized environments and helped us understand. A big welcome, Dollar. Okay, we have a series of questions. Some are for all our panelists and some are individually directed. 
My first question is for all panelists, and I'll go uh, through an order of Al first, then Io, and then Dollar on this first question. And I apologize for the length of it, but there's some information that we wanted to get across. London police have reported an increase in hate-motivated crimes and incidents. There were 146 hate-related occurrences reported to police in 2021 alone. That was a 56% increase from 2020 and a 140% increase from 2019. 83 of those occurrences were deemed hate-related crimes and 63 were hate-related incidents. To some, these look like individual acts. But I want to ask you, do you feel that there are systemic issues that promote these kinds of actions? And for our listeners, can you speak to that from your lived and learned perspective? I'll go to Al first, please. Thank you, Jerry. Uh, my language acts. Hello, everyone. So the question is uh, simple enough, but the answer is pretty complex from my perspective. So to maybe to, just to give you an insight in terms of what I believe has led to uh, this uh, systemic approach to Indigenous people, I just want to read with read to you a quote that was uh, the federal government put out in 1876 and it says our Indian legislation generally rests on the principle that Aborigines are to be kept in a condition of tutelage and treated as wards or children of the state. It is clear our wisdom and our duty through education and other means to prepare them for a higher civilization by encouraging them to assume the privilege and responsibilities of full citizenship. And there's a larger backtrack to that backtrack to that and it starts with the writing of Aristotle and I don't have time to go through that but the uh, in one sense they might be individual but in reality uh, it's 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 something I've encountered uh, throughout my life uh, I recall the first time I encountered racism uh, I was a I was a grade nine student I was going to Eastbrook Beale Technical School and I was one of the five that was selected to ultimately go to university that's the first time I encountered racism, uh, and uh, it was a, a difficult, challenging time. And uh, so, uh, unfortunately, throughout my life, uh, this this uh, this this challenge of racism, you know, has reared its head at different times. I first encountered it when I was in high school. I encountered it uh, later on when I was playing um, hockey uh, and uh, as a young fellow, and I was we were going to different parts of uh, Southern Ontario, small towns. And people weren't very shy in letting them know what they thought of you. And uh, they used to uh, make all kinds of noises and uh, tell, tell us red yahoos that we need to go back to the reservation and so on. And uh, so, and then more recently, uh, uh, one of the things that uh, I did include in my bio that, uh, that Jerry was reading from was I, I was also elected uh, chief of my team for 10 years and I was a council for eight years. So throughout that period of time, uh, I encountered uh, lots of uh, professionals, uh, be it engineers, lawyers, uh, people with degrees, uh, bureaucrats, uh, MPs, MPPs. And it was very much, uh, they knew what was best for us. They knew what uh, we should be doing. Uh, they, they basically described it in such a way, and I used to hear this repeatedly, there's something wrong with you indigenous people. We've got the solution, and here's the solution. All you have to do is implement the solution, and you'll be fine. And that happened repeatedly. So 
to me, uh, the, uh, there may be an increase in reporting, uh, you know, these, these, these uh, motivated crimes and incidents, uh, but they're always with us. And I think it's more a matter that maybe there's a, a bit of a conscience growing that uh, people are starting to actually maybe uh, put pen to paper or pick up the telephone or email and say that we've encountered a problem. So uh, it's not new to us and it's still going on today. I have staff that uh, uh, that uh, go to powwows, they, uh, they play cross, they do this, they do that. And they continue to run, run into these these challenges. And this is this is not 20 years ago, this is not 30 years ago, this is last week. And this continues to happen, so thank you. Thanks very much, Al. Ayo, could I ask you? Sure, absolutely. I, I do believe that um, systemic issues are still in place. Um, there have been several incidences that have taken place. One example, uh, about two years ago, uh, there was a, a situation that occurred where uh, a member of the Ethiopian community uh, in this area, um, there was a, a dead body that, or there was a there was an individual that was being searched for that was missing. And after a year of quote unquote investigation, they still couldn't find the body. After the Ethiopian community started to protest and push back, a new investigator was brought in and they discovered the body inside uh, the individual's house. So I don't know how you've done investigation for over a year and not even discover that the body was in the house where who he probably should have started in the first place. That was a major issue that took place in the Kitchener-Guelph area um, just a few years ago. Um, and there have been several incidences in the Nigerian community and the African community. Uh, there is a young 16-year-old um, uh, teenage boy who... Uh, started driving uh, just two years ago, 16 at that point is 18 now. And within the first six months of learning how to drive was pulled over six times by the police. And of course, out of fear and frustration, uh, unfortunately, he is taller than the average 16 year old. Um, and he had dreadlocks, I guess maybe that was the quote unquote difference um, that led to him being pulled over so many times. His father informed me of this. I spoke to one of the leaders in, um, uh, in the police over, over here uh, in uh, Waterloo region, and none of those six pullover incidences were reported. It was, no, in any, it was not in any record whatsoever. So why was this then occurring in the first place? Why was the 16-year-old being asked, why are you driving this car? His father bought him that car for him to be able to drive around. The types of questions he was being asked, number two. And number three, why wasn't these six incidences documented as well? And lastly, in my opinion, what sort of mindset and what are we sharing with the 16-year-old? And what type of fear is being instilled in the 16-year-old? And what type of anger is being built in the 16-year-old? You could end up in a situation where later on he starts to talk back suddenly it's an issue of this uh, individual was not respectful of police. Yeah, you put him six times over for nothing that was committed. He wasn't crossing any red light. He wasn't over speeding. It wasn't any of those issues. And this just occurred two years ago. I mean, luckily we were able to jump into that situation, start challenging leadership and the police. They stepped in to do investigation. There was no record whatsoever. 
And there's so many more stories. The Somalian community here had to meet him with the police to figure out why are people, our people being targeted? So there have been several incidences within the African community of things like this occurring. When we think of the word systemic, it goes bigger than an individual. Uh, you're thinking of culture, you're thinking of the way things have been done, you're thinking of what is acceptable, what is okay. You're thinking of a situation where people are not being punished for actions. So, you know, when you tolerate something, you're indirectly saying it's okay for those things to occur and take place. So systemic issues are quite deep. There's been a lot of work that is being done. I want to acknowledge that, but we're so far from where everyone feels like they belong in the community. And if it's already occurrence with 16 year old, what do we expect to happen when this individual grows up and becomes a part of the community? That trust the police is looking to quote unquote build with the community is not gonna be there because this individual is gonna fear the police rather than wanna partner with the police. So I think it's important that we identify and think through some of these issues as we look to move forward. And as we look to um, quote unquote partner with the police through a lot of these issues and eliminating a lot of these issues in the force. Thanks very much, Ayo. Dollar, could I get your comments, please? Absolutely. I absolutely think that these incidents are not unrelated. They are, they can be viewed as independent, but however, there is a undeniable trend and uh, relationship between all of them. When it comes to anti-Asian hate, uh, we see a huge increase of that during the pandemic as it relates to um, the coronavirus, right? And I think a lot of that has been perpetuated by um, politicians, for instance, the way uh, Trump has referred to it repeatedly as you know, the China virus. Um, it, it perpetuates this sense that um, Chinese people and Asian people are you know, bringers of disease and are associated with um, you know, taking over you know, jobs and uh, bringing, bringing this to this country. Um, and a lot of that is actually rooted um, deeply in Canadian history. Um, I think this is one part that we really need to improve about the education system. I never learned about uh, Chinese Canadian or Asian Canadian history throughout my upbringing and in elementary school. Um, it was only in my most recent adult years that I myself went down that rabbit hole and started reading about things like the head tax and um, the, the exclusion acts um, that prevented uh, Chinese women, first of all, from Im immigrating to the Americas, and then uh, also prevented men from having the right to vote until after World War II. Um, so a lot of these things, the history behind um, systemic racism of, you know, against Asian people in Canada, uh, I don't believe that has been talked about enough. And we aren't doing enough um, in the school systems to educate people about this. And so it definitely has roots um, deeper than, you know, just the, the things and the changes that we see most recently. Um, and so one example I will talk about as well um, is the increase in bullying, uh, especially related to uh, the the coronavirus. Uh, one of our really close family friends, uh, they immigrated to Canada uh, two years ago and they have two sons uh, and they're both in uh, all white classrooms with all their teachers being white. And so they already had a lot of um, some, some learning developmental issues in the past. And so this move to Canada has exacerbated um, the issues that they were seeing. Uh, they both developed selective mutism um, and experienced a lot of physical bullying 
as well as verbal attacks from children. Um, they are their ages six and nine right now um, and have been called like, like you're bringing the virus here, like take your Corona away from here, um, have been, you know, beat up in school. And the, the mother, like we are, we are very close friends with this family. And my sister teaches them the, the two children piano, and we've been doing our very best to support them. And I think the, the way that uh, we've recommended is in, in this case, to move schools, um, to change a school where they are not the only Chinese um, students in the classroom. But I don't think that this should be the solution, right? Um, at, a, at a deeper level, education and um, the impact of that can really change uh, some of the things that we, we are facing as, as Chinese and uh, Asian, Asian Canadians. Thanks very much, Dollar. And I'd just like to say that what I hear from our panelists is that while these acts may be done by individuals or small groups, they really have an underlying network of understanding cultural and uh, discriminatory and racialized biases that bring those things forward. Uh, and I, I would also like to just say that my indigenous friends and black friends have been uh, pushing very hard to have real history presented but uh, of, of uh, the, uh, in the country itself. I'm gonna reverse the order now. Um, so I gotta put you back to work, <laughs> Dollar. Um, a question for you. Uh, recently, we've heard restaurant owners here in our city of London speaking about anti-Asian harassment, reports of vandalism, racist notes being left behind. Uh, you're getting what you deserve here, wrecking defecating in storerooms. Uh, could I ask you to comment on these or other events? Um, and do you think that the response by the City of London, the response um, uh, is, is adequate and is moving in the right direction? Yes, absolutely. So when I first learned about these incidents, um, it was deeply, deeply hurtful. Um, oftentimes because my family is, uh, we've been fairly well established within the London community uh, for many years now. And a lot of these communities and these families are our friends and we know them. Uh, and it is extremely hurtful um, when we see this. Uh, I have been fortunate enough to not have experienced any of this uh, directly myself, but have observed the impacts of it from family and friends. And it is so hurtful because I know that for many of these families, this was this has been their life and their livelihood. They've worked extremely hard as immigrant um, families and their children to make a life for themselves here and to not receive any recognition of that and instead be told to go back to your country, um, you know, take the disease with you. Uh, it completely overrides all of the contribution and the commitment um, that these families have, have given to London. And so I think, I think when I see this, uh, it, it, it astounds me that, that this is still happening. And so I think the response from, uh, from the city of London has, uh, has, can be improved. I think there should be more long-term action uh, driven. Uh, and I would like to see uh, commitments to changing, changing curriculum uh, or to educational efforts in, uh, in the long-term instead of you know, merely Band-Aid solutions. Uh, and so I think these are some things that 
we can consider moving forward and actually more so telling the stories of uh, these immigrant families and showing their, uh, their work and their dedication and their contribution to both London's community and uh, to Canada. Thanks very much. And I think just as a corollary to that is that um, if I'm hearing you right, we as citizens and as organizations should be saying that we do not want to tolerate this. We will not put up with this kind of behavior. Ayo, um, you speak about key themes related to immigrant populations and racialized communities in your public speaking and your podcasts. Could we ask you to talk about what we can do to help ensure that no one's left behind and that we make our country and region a fulfilling home for all? Thank you for that question. I want to appeal to everyone here, all 69 participants, that um, we all play a role in ensuring that individuals and immigrants that are coming in uh, not only feel welcome, but are well integrated into our, um, our different communities. Uh, these individuals are not just, they're not sucking out of the system. These individuals are adding great value to your community. These individuals are gonna be paying taxes as they grow and as they build wealth and as they develop and integrate into the system. These individuals will own properties, pay property taxes, and that money is part of the community. I love to say that, even though it sounds very, uh, we should all know this, um, individuals are not coming in to take jobs away from uh, those that are here. Individuals are here to add value uh, to the community and what is taking place. So I think it's important that I start with that and we can all play a role in ensuring that everyone that comes in uh, feels welcomed, is supported, is helped out. A recent uh, stat that I read talked about um, uh, between 20 to 30 percent of immigrants, uh, younger immigrants, are leaving after two years of being in Canada. That is a large number of money that should be staying here that is going to be heading back to their different countries. Uh, they're having several challenges integrated into the system. Many of us, when we first arrived, uh, we, we've had challenges. We, I lost two jobs within the first few years of joining, of coming to Canada. So some of those issues play a key role and it makes people to start questioning, was this the land that was well marketed to me as an opportunity for me to grow, raise my family and develop? Or is this something completely different? So the government can only do much. It, the power is in the grassroots, is in the community where we can pull people in. There are five key things that I like to talk about during my sessions with people. Number one, we have to be willing to be courageous. And what do I mean by courageous? Having courageous conversations, reaching out to people. Yes, our cultures are different. Yes, we're, uh, the way we eat our foods are different. Yes, the way we probably greet each other is different. But it's a great opportunity for us to learn from one another and expand our world uh, perspective, um, our thought process. So that is so important. Can we be courageous to reach out to people? Can we be courageous to try to have conversations? Go beyond just smiling and walking by people when we go for our walks in the mornings and in the evenings or when we see them at the community centers. Approaching, getting to know that individual. And if we do mess up, if we do say the wrong thing, if we don't pronounce the name properly, if we 
guess that Io is from Kenya and Io is from Nigeria, or this person is from China, but you find out the person is from South Korea or whatever. It's not a time to hide into your shell and hide and run away. It's a time to try to engage and overcome some of those things. Yes, people get offended by that, but it's important that we go beyond that. So willing to be courageous, willing to connect with people, building trust, inviting them over to dinner, um, spending some time getting to know them, having conversations, getting to learn more about them, you sharing about your life story. That's how we build trust in our communities. And then moving beyond that, an opportunity to learn more, learn more about their culture. Someone said to me once, he's like, oh, so in Nigeria, uh, you speak three languages, right? And I'm like, uh, 300 languages, and each language has several dialects, and I don't even understand the dialect an hour away from me, even though we're speaking the same language. Talk less of my father's village going there and, and, and speaking the same exact language, but it's so different. It's an opportunity for us to learn and expand our views. And you can learn so much more. Every culture or tribe is coming in with an area of strength. They're coming in with the gift of a hand. They're coming in with the gift of a heart. They're coming in with powerful stories. So many amazing things that could be shared. It's a great opportunity for us to learn from people, for us to uh, gain perspective. And then next step is coaching. There are times where people don't know the quote unquote nuances in the Canadian culture that you know. How can you work with them through that? Uh, Canadians seem to be more indirect in their conversation. Nigerians are very direct, too direct in our conversation style. Now, imagine the clashes in the workplace when my boss says, would you mind doing this? Where most of my life, it's go do this. You better do it or you leave this job. And then a new boss goes, would you mind? We're speaking English, but we're speaking too different types of English because culture has been infused in it. There are some places and sometimes where you can help our your colleagues that are immigrants, you can share with them, you can provide some insights, things that you know that you see that they're not even paying attention to at all, which are cultural blind spots, and you can help them through that process. I'm currently working on a book that focuses on these five areas, and I'm trying to squeeze it all into five minutes, but I hope that provides uh, some, some, some items for you to think about. And then lastly, is just the importance of building cultures as well. When we start having this integration, integration is not just someone integrated into your culture and into your system. It's you learning about their culture and system and also you being able to integrate into that as well. You'll be shocked by so many things that you can learn about other places. Don't wait till Harvard Business Review or some research by a journalist tells you about some amazing thing that is learned about a particular tribe in another country and you can infuse into your business and now you think that's profound. There are people in your community that can share those things with you because that's the life that they've lived for decades and their uh, ancestors have lived that as well. We can learn so much from other people by just listening and being able to go back and forth with them. Sorry, I've taken up a long time on that, but I hope those five key things that all of us, all six, in, six of us now that are on this call are able to integrate those five things in and practice them. We will have totally different communities. We can transform our communities starting today. Thank you, Ayo. Al, I had a question for you. You have uh, decades of experience working on making communities run well, delivering services and providing advice. As a traditional chief on Oneida, 
of the Thames First Nation um, as executive director of NAMRIND, as a board member of LCF. Can I ask you to pick a couple of key lessons on what we can do or stop doing uh, to build an environment of reconciliation, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's in service organizations or whether it's in our neighborhoods? Interesting question. Uh, I always talk about uh, exceeding five minutes. Uh, I'm gonna try and stay as those parameters. I think the, uh, you know, the uh, experience, it varies, it varies, my experiences varies, depends on who you interact with and how willing or able that person you're interacting with wants to listen to you, cares to listen to you, cares to understand uh, what you're, what you're talking about. And, uh, you know, in terms of being effective, uh, Part of being effective is, is understanding your audience, your home audience, and, and trying to understand uh, uh, years and years of uh, discrimination, years and years of uh, being put down, years and years of being told you're dumb, you're stupid, uh, you're a second-class citizen, the only way you're going to advance is, uh, is you're going to have to uh, yet become like us. And the other thing uh, that uh, I want to also talk about is uh, maybe sort of help me get into the answer of the question. So about 32 years ago or so, I, uh, I was working for the seven largest indigenous communities in Ontario. And uh, I was doing policy analyst work for them and I was looking at uh, various government uh, policies, procedures, uh, and so on. And near the end of my contract, I had a contract with them. Uh, they asked me to do a comparative analysis uh, between a state of uh, U.S. tribes and Canadian First Nations. And uh, I spent some time on it, but not enough. And one of the things that puzzled me was why do why do Indigenous people uh, on the United States or Canada why are they treated so badly? Why why you know why is this uh, you know over and over again? And uh, I concluded at the time, uh, though I should say after a while, I concluded that maybe it had to do with land. It maybe it had to do with guilt over land. Maybe it had guilt over how land was acquired. Uh, the other thing that uh, more recently I've come to understand is, is that everybody, everybody on this panel, all the audience, I would say, I don't know who else on the audience, but I would say everybody is an immigrant to North America. We're not. And yet, uh, it seems that uh, the only way uh, we're going to be welcomed or promoted uh, are, is, is we have to become you. We have to become, uh, we have to figure out how we join mainstream society. And if we reject that, when we're considered, they, they don't use this fancy term, but they call it different things, but they, we're considered deviants. Um, we're considered to be out of the norm, or out of lockstep. And the only way we're going to conform is is uh, is by by following uh, by following lead that was set the path that was set in front of us. And so part of my my challenge is working with my own people is to understand, try to understand their thinking, try to understand uh, where they're coming from. And it's been a long journey, and I don't know that I'm still there yet because uh, uh, part of trying to understand our people's psyche, our understanding our people's thinking, 
is to try to overcome and understand uh, how they've been put down over and over again. And I was thinking about my father, seven-year residential school survivor. Uh, I was in my mid-30s when I found out that he was a survivor because he never talked about it. And and what he what he came to be as of seven years of that experience was he became an, became a, an excellent product, the desired product of the residential school system, which was which meant that he was a very compliant Indigenous person. He never ever ever challenged the man in any way, shape, or form. And uh, and so uh, I started covering that. Uh, when I was first elected chief and I was curious about, uh, and I didn't understand always why the comments that were directed to some of the things I was promoting that, you know, we, we, we don't have to stand for this. We should speak up or we should, we should challenge people. And I was told that uh, I was too bold. I was too aggressive. I was too this, too that. And really what I was doing, I was going against the norm uh, of, of our people's learned behavior, learned, learned patterns of, of being compliant. And so I understood that. And so you had, what you had to do is you had to, you had to squeeze a little bit of time in terms of advancement, in terms of independent thinking, in terms of uh, applying critical things to issues and so on. And uh, uh, so for me, it, it's understanding your own people's thinking, but then also what you have to also do is figure out the people that you're dealing with. They're coming from a position, a period of a perspective of superiority that they know that's best for you. I mentioned previously, and that uh, the only way you're going to get along, as far as they're concerned, is you have to become uh, you have to become part of the, the mainstream society. And so, if you insist on that, one of the things you have to do is um, you have to find at times when you're partially compliant, and maybe you're visibly compliant, but in reality, in the end. Your ultimate goal is is to introduce something that's new and foreign, in terms of independent thinking. And so, for me, part of the you know part of the experience that I've learned is that is is you have to. I people don't call this a game, but it is a game of life. It is a game of life. And and part of the challenge for us as Indigenous people is that the system that uh, we we all currently deal with it's a capitalistic system. It's acquisitional wealth. It's the uh, uh, acquiring and uh, a power and maintenance of power, and that's what the capitalist system is all about. And the cultural norms of indigenous people is not that way. We don't look at things that way. We look at uh, Martha did uh, at the beginning. She did an opening, you know, with respect to giving thanks to the land and so on. Well, indigenous people, uh, I think there are at least a hundred different uh, tribes or First Nations in Canada. We all have our different ways of, of relating to Mother Earth and, and to the Creator and my language, and giving thanks and being part of that system, part of that part of that bigger world, and understanding that we're not above that world. And yet, the mainstream society promotes that they're above above that above the world, above natural the natural world, and, and proof of that being uh, incorrect is just looking at the the climate changes that are occurring. And, uh, and that, that stems from the perspective that humans, uh, uh, humans believe that they're above Mother Earth, that they, they control everything, and Mother Earth is, is going through this cleansing process. So I, I, could, I could go on, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of come to an end and say that 
part of the challenge with you know with implementing change and implementing new systems and so on and uh within our own ranks is is a little bit at a time and trying to educate our own people about uh, our people's identity uh, and the art it's, it's okay to be absolutely different it's okay to be uh to have a different viewpoint and it's okay to be non-compliant and and to me that's encouraging uh, our own people to uh, to uh, to reach a different conclusion it doesn't mean that you necessarily uh, are uh, you challenge the mainstream society in, in negative uh, and, and uh, negative ways that maybe lead to charges uh, but it means that you're, you're not scared to speak up you're not scared to, scared to ask questions and the other other side of the table is you have to understand that some people when you ask questions are very uncomfortable and they want to deal with you so what you have to do is it, it depends on the individual, uh, but you have to uh, have to pick your points uh, when you're going to be aggressive versus less aggressive. And that's what I've learned is, is that uh, it really depends on uh, who you're dealing with, quite frankly. Uh, and uh, so I'd like to think that we've done, a, uh, I've been involved in a number of opportunities uh, in my own community or more recently at Nairman. And, and part of that is, is knowing when to push and when not to push. So thank you. Thanks very much, Al. Some common themes that we hear over and over again from our panelists uh, include uh, calling on us all to learn um, and celebrating differences, um, understanding history and what it's done to people and what it's done to circumstances and what opportunities it creates and what roadblocks it creates and standing up, asking questions, making clear what we accept, what we don't accept, being willing to uh, help people with how the society around them is working without demanding them that they become what that society is, um, cultures building. Uh, all our people have been pushing for those kinds of things. I wanted to share just a, a, one quick story um, a friend, uh, when I lived in Saskatchewan, um, a woman from Cree Nation, um, her son and my daughter were like super best buddies, right? Um, and one day her son phoned me, he was five years old, and he said that his mom was hiding under her bed and she wouldn't come out and would I come over? So I drove across town, I went in and she was petrified and scared because she had seen that day a teacher from a residential school at Labrette, Saskatchewan, who had beaten her when she was a little, little girl. And her whole world was imploding around her. That's the kinds of things that I think that we have to remember and understand uh, that people face. And this happens in other populations too. People who came to us from different lands in different times, and faced being segregated, cut out of jobs. Uh, we all know in the prairies, uh, the railway was built largely by Asian labor that wasn't allowed to live anywhere, wasn't allowed to bring their families, weren't allowed any kind of rights. So these kinds of things are important for us to understand because it creates a whole uh, reaction and a whole system around that makes it difficult for people. And I just wanted to also point out that Canada faces a shortage of labor force now, and it will become acute in the next decade. 
we need people to come to this country and help build it. I have not got a list of questions in front of me right now, so I can ask one more to the panel. Um, recently, a study showed that 80% of Indigenous people and 60% of immigrants and racialized peoples have reported discrimination. Survey respondents reported that this discrimination occurred because of race, skin color, ethnicity, culture, and Indigenous people said it was their Indigenous identity that was the target. The study found that this was worse in regions where there are only smaller communities. How does this align with your experience? Do you think that it's true that this is more difficult in smaller communities, or is this endemic to all communities? Uh, could I ask uh, Iwo to begin? Ayo? Ayo, sorry. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I was looking at the names. I was wondering who was. <laughs> Sorry about that. You know, I, I've lived in Waterloo Region since I moved here. So it's, um, I won't be able to speak uh, in terms of smaller communities, although uh, that could be relative of Toronto compared to Waterloo Region compared to a Toronto in terms of population. I have worked in London, Ontario. And um, I can share two exper um, experiences from both areas. Number one, uh, while working in London was probably one of my worst experiences um, working with individuals in the organization that I was part of uh, because I faced a lot of, um, should I say, racist um, attacks from colleagues and nothing was done by HR um, through that process. Um, and uh, with my podcast, I know we've promoted on social media and the types of comments that we've seen uh, that comes in, uh, we've had to stop uh, pushing and promoting uh, in the region because of the different types of go back to your country. We don't want you here. Who told you to come here in the first place? Um, and like you mentioned, Jerry, we're facing shortages in labor and, and, and uh, so many key areas uh, that were in dire need of people to come in um, to be able to support in those areas. So uh, it is sad that a lot of those things uh, occur, but I would say in the areas that I've worked and I've lived, um, I've seen those things um, occur. HRreporter.com also talks about how a survey that they've done, 77% of racialized Canadians uh, felt like they're on guard at the workplace. Uh, windmill.org shared about 41% uh, of immigrants are, quote unquote, um, feeling a high level of stress at the workplace as well. So this even goes beyond just the smaller communities. This is uh, across uh, the country where these things are occurring. And it's important. And I'm glad we're having this conversation to bring light to these issues. Thanks. Al, could I ask your view, please? Sure. Um... I was just I was looking at the chat and there is there is uh, kind of a question and, and somebody commented about uh, how come nobody talk about uh, white superiority or racism. Um, I'm going to talk just a little bit about it uh, and and to to do to do to have a full understanding of that is to understand uh, how Mississippi society uh, has shaped itself and how how Christian doctrine has shaped itself. And you have to start with Aristotle writings. And Aristotle writes about uh, some people in Nasser who are going to be uh, 
aristocrats and the people now should go and be slaves. And then you roll forward to, to the Roman Empire and they developed this theory of Terry Nullis. Essentially, they viewed the land vacant unless, unless the Roman Empire, the Roman flag was there. And so when they conquered uh, that land, uh, some people are allowed to maintain their positions of stature and other people were enslaved and taken back to Rome. And they also introduced taxation as part of that process. And then you look at the, uh, people don't want to talk about this, or don't seem to want to hear about this, but the Nicene Council, late 325 AD, that was the foundation of the Christian faith. And it was, it was, it was a bunch of uh, Caucasian guys that got together and determined that what was viable, what was available, what was possible, what they liked in the way of disciples that uh, were advising uh, Jesus. Uh, they allowed some to stay and others to reject it. And the other thing is they established was a concept of uh, uh, evil and the, and the concept of, of hell. And they also attributed the fact that sin started with woman. And so that, that was a Christian doctrine. And that's what's been introduced to, to, uh, to all of, you know, all of uh, society. And you come forward, jump forward to 1492, the, uh, the Pope issues his papal decree, or papal bulls, and uh, they know about Africa, they know about the Far East. And they promote the facts of the Christian nations of Europe at the time, which I think were all Catholic, that uh, go out and uh, get, get the wealth that's in those lands and bring it back to us, make sure we get our fair share, and do what you got to do to those people. 1492, Columbus gets lost, calls us all Indians. 1493, the Pope issues a papal decree and essentially repeats what he says in 1452, which is uh, America, South and North America are full of resources and resources. The people are, that are, live there, uh, they're, not, they're, not, they're not human, they're heathens, they're, they're, they're non-Christians, they don't have the capacity on land, uh, do what you gotta do. 1498, Henry VII issues a royal proclamation that ultimately becomes the eminent domain or document discovery which is the foundation of what we're talking about here, is that it's it's predicated on a basis that uh, uh, there's uh, there's quite frankly I don't mean to offend anybody, but it's true. White superiority. Uh, whites are right. They're right. They're correct. It's their it's their duty. It's their it's the it's it, they were the, the chosen people, and uh, you'd have to do what you got to do to those people. And so that's the foundation of, of indigenous treatment in, in, in the Americas, uh, which is one of conquest being described as heathen and savages, and eminent domain doctor discovery. And it's, 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 it's written into, into law. It's in the Supreme Court of the United States. It's, it's part of the court systems of Canada. And so the judicial system is based on rule of law. And it's always their law. It's not our law. And, and uh, to, to challenge that, means you end up going to jail. And so the judicial system is predicated based on the fact that uh, you, you either become compliant or you're considered deviant and you're found guilty. And I was, I was at a, a session at the, uh, the uh, downtown, uh, the uh, police department here a few, number of years ago. And we were asked, and there was a table about six and our people from different parts of the country in each of the tables. And so one of the questions that was posed was, what's your relationship to, uh, to the police? So the one table, Harold Usher was part of it. Harold Usher was the first, first black city councilor. Uh, one of the people gets some reports. So a question was posed to the table. So Harold answers and he says, we all come from different parts of the world. He says, where we come from, we look at people in uniform as a force. We come to Canada and look at it as a service. 
Well, guess what? In Canada, Indigenous people still look at people in uniform, actually people in authority as well, as a force, not a service. And that's a stark difference. And, and uh, people don't want to talk about that stuff. They want to ignore that. And they hope that uh, people like myself don't find a platform. I have a platform to say too much because uh, people are really uncomfortable when you're honest with them. And that's what I find recently. I've done presentations. I It's curious when some people get back to me and they say, um, thanks for being so candid. And I thought that's what presentations are all about, is telling the way it is, not the way people want to hear. So thanks. Hi, Dollar. Can I give you last word? Yep, for sure. So I think the question being, is racism uh, more prevalent in these smaller communities compared to larger ones? And uh, I think, although there they are, there are many commonalities between uh, the experiences all across the board. Um, I think in smaller communities, it is easier to feel more isolated when there's less representation. So like the example I, I spoke about, when you're in a classroom and you're the only Asian uh, kid, it definitely feels different than if there are, you know, a couple of other students. And then that way you feel like you're at least you're going through something together. But the isolation piece is is heightened when um, you don't see others like yourself um, represented in those scenarios. I have a friend who is from uh, Timmins, um, Canada. And so he that little town is very, very, um, very small, I think a very small population. And um, his family was the only uh, Chinese family in the entire city. He never met another Chinese uh, kid growing up. And that was that was all he knew. And he did face quite a bit of discrimination because of that. And so I think that would be different um, for, let's say, me growing up here in London. So, and I am very thankful to have gone to schools where um, I am able to connect with other students like myself. Um, but even growing, growing up and, you know, starting work in the workplace, oftentimes I've been in teams where I am uh, the only female Asian uh, person out of a team of 30 or 40. Um, and uh, being being a woman and Asian at the same time, I think there is a unique challenge that comes with that as well. Um, as the media has portrayed uh, Asian women in a certain light, there there are different tropes that have come up throughout um, history and in movies. Um, this uh, this hypersexualized, demure, submissive trope of like the China doll. Um, I think that's extremely detrimental uh, when it comes to uh, Asian women uh, and violence against them specifically. Specifically, um, if we think of the Atlanta shootings from last year, right? Um, the police were at first very hesitant to uh, to classify it as a racially motivated act. They said, you know, they took the offender's words at face value, saying it was just a um, it was due to his quote unquote sex addiction. But if you think about that, you, it's very difficult to separate misogyny, sexism, and racism in this context because the way that Asian women have been portrayed um, and all of the stereotypes that come with that. So I think um, as we as we see more Asian women represented in, um, in film, in movies, and in, in entertainment in more positive ways, uh, we are changing the, uh, the dialogue around, you know, us as people and how, how that isn't tied to our sexuality and the way that the media um, has negatively portrayed us in the past. And so um, I think I think there's a lot of change and movement in the right direction. And um, I just hope that all our listeners can uh, can be open to be open to learning uh, like 
like many of the other panel, the other panelists have already mentioned, um, be open-minded. Don't be afraid to ask. Don't don't be afraid of asking just because you might get something wrong. I have been mistaken for many different races in the past, and I never take any offense to that. I'm just really, uh, really happy that um, they have asked, and I'm uh, super open to having that conversation. Uh, so. If there's one thing I would leave you all to, uh, would be to um, be open to learning and and uh, take risks and uh, and be open to asking. Thank you to all our panelists for today. There's one question came up from the audience, which uh, we have a couple of minutes, not enough time to do a real justice. But Martha, um, the question was to you, and it's uh, what is LCF? Uh, how are we approaching systemic racism and what, uh, what do we see as some of the things that we should be doing? I think, Jerry, thank you. And I thank all the panelists um, for this. And I've learned, you know, what I've heard throughout this discussion is learning. And our foundation is committed to learning more about systemic racism, what we can do to change, what we can do to educate ourselves, our vital signs report that um, you're now part of because of what you've been doing today. Through our grant program, um, these kinds of conversations, we encourage our donors um, to, to learn more. And you know, if there's grant opportunities that they can support, we encourage them to. So overall, um, we've been doing working on this for a couple of years now. And our board is fully committed to a better understanding and learning and then you know implementing change so but it's you know it's beta steps um overall we want to get it right but you know dollar to your point if we get it wrong it's that's okay too so um i hope that answers the the question jerry do you want me to just go ahead and wrap up or i think it would be time to wrap up thank you martha okay. Um, I want to thank um, Al and Ao and Dollar for leading this excellent conversation, this excellent conversation today. I think it's been very informative. I think I, we've been following the chat with Leanna and I and good questions. Jerry, thank you for keeping us on track um, as usual. Um, and obviously this is a conversation that we're not finished with that we have to have more of this kind of dialogue and uh, we certainly will um, thank you to our producers Matt, Matt and Vanessa for putting this together today uh, thank you all of you for taking time over your lunch hour to join us um, I hope you um, found it informative and value add um, please watch for our next vital conversation. We don't have a date yet or a theme, but we will, and we'll certainly make sure that you're all aware of it. And if you would like any more information on today's session, um, I believe we recorded it. So uh, if you'd like to share it with any colleagues or, or your uh, peer circles, we'll certainly make it available to you. So. Enjoy the rest of your day and stay cool because it's pretty hot out there. Thanks for joining us for this episode of What Lenin Can Be. Look for us wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about today's guest, 
visit us at lcf.on.ca forward slash what Lenin can be. If you like this podcast, tell a friend and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You'll find links on our website. Thank you again for listening to us.